We are uh, jumping now into uh, another chapter in John's Gospel, and we're kind of turning a corner, we're entering into a new theme, and, and today we're just looking at the first 18 verses of this chapter, but the reality is uh, all of this chapter is one unit, and the emphasis of all of this chapter is to identify and to establish by Jesus' words, John's record a record of the events that Jesus Christ is, in fact, equal with God. And, in fact, John chapter 5 is probably a chapter in the Bible that we should know very well. Kind of like John chapter 3, but it's not the kind of chapter that most of us really know much about, is it? You think about it. You don't usually think of, oh, John chapter 5, that's the classic passage. But it really is a critical passage in understanding who Jesus is, and the fact that he is equal with God. And uh, verses 1 through 16 or 18, somewhere in there, we could say, really identify Jesus' um, encounter with this, um, this invalid, this palsied man, and then uh, the issues on the Sabbath. But that's all preparation for what Jesus is going to say. Uh, that is going to be from verses 19 and following, and we'll deal with that next week and probably the week after that. But today our purpose is going to be to, to focus on, on the occasion that Jesus uses to bring about this discussion. But as we uh, begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. Are you superstitious? Anyone here superstitious? You don't want to raise your hand, do you? You're not allowed to do that. This is church. can't do that. We're not allowed to be superstitious. But um, are you superstitious? There are some things that we are superstitious about. Let me, let me just mention this. Anyone know who Sparky Anderson is? All right, baseball coach, baseball player, was at Detroit Tigers. He has a superstition or had a superstition that he would not step on the baseline, the foul line, at all. I mean, literally, he'd be walking, and all of a sudden, you'd see him trip sometimes because he had forgotten he would not because he thought if you did, then it was going to be bad luck. Um, you guys may know the name of... Uh, Axel Rose, does that ring a bell to any of you? Don't, don't admit it, but if it does, um, he was one of the, um, the members of the Grateful Dead, is that right? Ah, Guns and Roses, there you go. See, I had, I had to pull that out of you, um, and all of a sudden I was corrected, wasn't it? But he had, I know, just think about that one. Um, he had a um, superstition with the letter M. Now, I don't know if it was from growing up and watching um, Sesame Street, and he had, a, you know, he, had a, he had a problem with the Cookie Monster or something like that, but literally it was so much of a superstition that he would not um, allow his band to perform in a town or a city that began with the letter M. Can you imagine the kind of bondage that would, you know, you couldn't go to all sorts of different places. Now, we do live, though, in contexts where superstition is even part of our culture, right? I mean, just look at the pictures up there, right? Um, the candles on a birthday cake. What's the superstition? Make a wish, but you have to blow them all out with what? One breath. And you've got you've to beat all the grandkids to it, too, all right? That's all the other thing, right? Um, what about the wishbone? Anyone know about that? It's called a wishbone for a reason, right? Two people grab one end, and whoever gets the big part, right, is the one that has their wish granted. Um, superstition. 
be an interesting study to find out how many people actually got their wish granted, right? Um, a ladder. Anyone here own a ladder? Now, there is wisdom to not walking under a ladder, right? But there's something superstitious, apparently, about that. Don't walk under a ladder. Again, another interesting study might be, take place there. And then another picture up there, a black cat. Anyone own a black cat? Yeah, okay, apparently you're just doomed, right? I mean, that's just the way it is, because that black cat is just constantly crossing your path, right? Um, these are all part of the superstitions that we live with. You know, um, from the land of Russia, I have come to understand that there is a superstition that when you go on vacation, when you're going on a journey, you're at the airport, you must sit on your luggage. Have you ever heard that one before? <laughs> Russians don't fly, they usually drive. Oh, that's funny, yeah. Yeah, all right, but, you know, I, I, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, thinking about this, this picture here, all right? Honey, it's your fault the flight got canceled. You didn't sit on the luggage. I told you, but you wouldn't listen to me. I mean, just think about that. These are, these are uh, pretty interesting superstitions. Um, how many of you touch wood or knock on wood? Yeah, there's none around here. It's all imitation stuff, right? Um, how many of you avoid the 13th floor or the number 13 or don't even like it? Say what? Well, there are. We just don't call them 13th floors, right? <laughs> but if you were to go to China, you know what the number is they avoid there? The number four. And I'm told that even sometimes on, like, cell phones, they won't even put that number on there because it brings bad luck. So apparently it brings bad luck in China, but over here it's 13. Well, there's no number 13. You have to really work to get that one on there, right? It's just life is full of superstitions within our culture. Now, the reason I bring this up is because I want you to pay attention to verse 4 in your text. Everyone read verse 4. Ah, what do you mean, Pastor Rod? Read verse 4. What's up with that? Huh? Where is verse 4? Wait a second here. I set you up really well, didn't I? All right, you got you. Got, you're all awake now, all right? Now, there is no verse 4 probably in your text. And if you do have verse 4 in your text, um, it's probably King James, I think, still had it in the actual flow of, of things. Now, don't, don't be afraid and say, ah, oh, what's going on? My Bible's, you know, weak. No, there, there, there's a reason for what's going on here. Remember, when this was written, when the words of Scripture were written, um, it wasn't written with verses and chapters. Like you would write a letter to your friend. You didn't say, you know, chapter 1, and, and you're writing your sentences in the mid-sentence. You put a little number for verses and stuff like that. That's not how it worked. The verses and chapters and the segments are all put there after the fact, and you might want to say in much more recent history, for the purpose of helping us index the, this vast volume of scripture that we have so that we can identify where we are and where we're going, connect things together. Much easier to do that if you can have some kind of measurement and some kind of guide, okay? What we have here, though, and the reason there is no verse 4 in your text is because um, the earlier manuscripts did not have verse 4. They did not have what was included in verse 4. The later manuscripts did, uh, did have that, and that's very, very interesting because it's not inspired then what is there in your footnote. 
you guys read your footnote, we'll have it up here on the screen here, I think. Um, your footnote should say this, some manuscripts insert, that is if you're reading an ESV, some manuscripts insert, wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons in the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. What does that sound like? Superstition. This isn't, do you know of any pool where people can go and get healed like this? No, this was put in after the fact. But there was a superstition around that whole pool that was taking place. And historical documents also verify the fact that these kinds of things were commonplace and would explain why there are so many people who are sick, who are palsied, who are lame, who are gathered around this pool um, by, oh, that's called Bethesda. Okay? So there is, there is this superstition that is going on here that is helpful for us in understanding what is going on in this text. So apparently here's what's going on. Um, you have all these people gathered around this pool who are sick, who are, you know, who are lame, who are invalids, who are struggling with some sort of problem, maybe blindness. And when the waters bubble, which we now know scientifically was probably because of springs and just the flow of water, when that happened, they thought that it was an angel that was stirring the water. And the first one in would receive the healing benefit. Okay? So that means you have a lot of people that are waiting that are hoping to get in. But only one person can benefit from it. And again, that would be an interesting study to find out who the first one is and whether or not they were healed or not, right? This is all superstition. Now, having said all that, um, it's important then that we jump to verse 18 here um, because what John is trying to do here in this context, in this whole passage, as we've mentioned so far, is he's taking us um, through a story with a purpose um, that Jesus himself and showing that Jesus himself is at work declaring himself to be equal with God. Jesus, through this story, and in the words that he gives, is himself declaring something about himself. And in particular, we find in verse 18 what it is, because the religious leaders there identified this and were accusing him of it and wanted to kill him because of it. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So here's the evidence. John is at work giving us this evidence to this reality, and he gives us these three verbs in this passage, verses 1 through 18, that I think help us to connect the story and what Jesus is revealing about himself. Here are the three, the three verbs. These are not necessarily... Um, the title headings of your handout. The three verbs are, number one, to heal, number two, to break, and number three, to work. So Jesus is involved in healing, he is involved in breaking, and he is involved in working. If you, you, you know, you've been thinking about this passage, you'll see how those things connect as we move ahead. So each declaration is building on this crescendo that ends up with Jesus declaring the fact that he is equal with God. And the ultimate result of that is that religious leaders begin not only to persecute him, but ultimately they want to kill him. So with that as our background, let's just pause for a moment and let's just ask God to give us wisdom here, okay? Lord, thank you for your goodness. 
Lord, for the opportunity of studying your word. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of John's gospel. Lord, it takes us places that maybe we, uh, we are not expecting it to. Uh, it challenges us, Lord, at levels that maybe uh, we were unprepared for. But, Lord, um, when you do that through your word and through your Holy Spirit, I ask that we would be humble and sensitive and willing, Lord, to listen and to be challenged and to be strengthened from your word. And, uh, Lord, would you allow me as your mouthpiece simply to declare your truth, and, Lord, that you would be glorified. And, Lord, if there's anything that I say that would be amiss, Lord, that, that you would just be able to take that and remove it from the hearts of people that are struggling with what it is you desire for them, and, Lord, that they would just see you and what you desire for them, Lord, to do. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, John 5 then marks out a shift in attitude um, on the part of the religious leadership, uh, an attitude that began really kind of with, with kind of intrigue. Um, uh, Carson puts it this way, uh, reservation and hesitation. They heard about what Jesus was doing out in the wilderness. All these people were coming to him just like they were do- with, with John, and they were getting baptized, but ultimately now we have opposition and persecution. That's where this is going. It's a huge transition from him just kind of being out there to now this confrontation taking place. So here are the three areas that we're going to be looking at today. The first one is this. um, These these realities unfold in this way. He heals an affliction. That's the first thing we're going to see. He heals an affliction. Then we're going to find out that he breaks a tradition. He breaks a tradition. And we're going to find out that he works a mission. So he heals an affliction, he breaks a tradition, he works a mission. And these are all kind of, might want to say, categories or arenas in the story that will help us connect with what Jesus is doing. So first we want to notice that Jesus heals an affliction. Um, let's read the, the, the first two verses again to get the setting. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in, the, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is just a, a really vivid picture of the, the plight of mankind. Here's this pool, and, and I mean, don't think of, you know, there's one or two of these people here. We're talking about a, a mass of people around this pool, so much so that they built these structures to, to cover and to shade the people that would be gathering there. Okay? So it seems that, that although, um, although there may have been a number of different pools around Jerusalem, this had become a haven for the sick, for the blind, for the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, if you haven't experienced maybe being in a situation where people are very, very helpless um, and maybe going through physical difficulties, um, and I don't want to be too graphic here, but I just want to stress what's going on here. This was probably a dirty place. It was probably very smelly. Um, there would be in the midst of the day the, the, the sweat and the odor and just kind of the, the, the horrible kind of dinge that would be at this place with, with people who are struggling with this kind of stuff. It's just the reality of it, okay? And, and, and then you have these people that are, that are holding on to a superstition, right? They're holding on to a man-made thought, a man-made answer and solution to their problem, but they're hoping and they're, they're, they're trying to be the first ones into this pool. 
And then we find in verse, uh, verse 5, one man was there um, who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. I mean, just when, when, when you're given information like that, it's supposed to kind of settle in on you, and you're like, wow, 38 years is a long time. Some of you haven't been alive for 38 years. Some of you haven't been alive for half of that. That's a long time to be struggling with an infirmity and an infirmity that he had that was so severe. Now, we're not told that he was at the pool for that long, but it seems as we read this passage that he had been there for quite a long time, for a significant amount of time. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, honestly, my, my first um, response when I read that, I don't want to be irreverent, but my first response, because I had a hard, un- hard time understanding why he would ask that kind of a question. If I was asking that kind of a question, it would fall in the category of dumb question. Let, let me kind of tell you what I mean. If you're, if you're going down the road and you see someone next to their car and they're undoing you know, lug nuts and you pull up and you, you, you step up to them, you say, you know, is everything okay? Do you have a flat? It's probably a dumb question. And that person probably would respond to you sarcastically saying, no, I just really enjoy being out on the side of the freeway in my dress clothes, especially when it's raining outside. I mean, it's kind of a, a dumb question when you think about it, right? When, when a team player, and this happened just this past week as I was helping a helping coach, but, you know, this player goes down, and he's writhing in pain, and I felt myself asking, are you hurt? Well, if you're writhing on the floor, you're probably hurt. And then one from the home context here, my wife is coming down the stairs with a big, huge pile of laundry, and she's about to trip, and I say, honey, do you need some help? Now, I deserve the response that I got. You understand that, okay? That was a dumb question. But, but Jesus never, ever, ever asks a dumb question. What he is doing is he is asking a question because he has, a, he has eyes to penetrate the heart and to know what is going on and he can perceive what is there. And so it's good for us to ask the Ask the question, which I don't think is a dumb question, what is Jesus driving at with this question? It seems obvious that this man, after 38 years of suffering, would want to be healed. But is it really that obvious? In my previous ministry, there was a a junior high youth room, and outside the junior high youth room was kind of a a patio area, and one of the things that took place there is that... um, is they brought a couch and they set it out there so that the young people could sit around and just kind of casual and be, have fellowship together. Well, over the course of one summer, um, we found out that there was a lady, a homeless lady, that would come and she would lay on this couch night after night. It was comfortable. It was long, you know, and it was kind of protected because there was kind of some shading around that and kind of stuff, so you wouldn't know that she was there. Um, and we found out that she had been there and been there for quite a while. And some people in the church wanted to minister to her, wanted to reach out to her and encourage her and, and help her out. But she ultimately refused the help. And she said, I don't, you know, thank you, but I don't want the help. I'm actually happy 
being homeless. She had learned to live in the context of that kind of lifestyle and had adjusted to it, and she didn't want relief from that lifestyle. Oh, she would want relief in the sense of give me food and give me that kind of stuff, but I don't want to change my lifestyle. Because being comfortable, it would be a huge fear to step out of that kind of a context for her. Okay? Now, so when I, when I think about that, that kind of scenario, you wonder whether or not he actually wanted to get out of his present circumstance. And I want you to track with me here. So Jesus asked this question, uh, uh, when he asked this question, it's very likely that this man before him really wasn't interested in getting well. His answer and his subsequent responses, I think, demonstrate that. Look at verse 7. The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, just think about this. This person is lame. They're paralyzed. They're an invalid. That means they, they can't get from you know, A to B without the help of someone else, right? So all this time, they've been at this pool. You've got someone else who may be blind, someone else who may not be quite as bad off as this person. When the water stirs, what's, what happens? They get there first. Okay? Now, um, if you think about it, you have met this man or woman. He or she is that person at work, in your neighborhood, at the gym, possibly even at church, who when they ask you, how are you doing, there's a part of you that cringes because you know that if you answer their question, you're going to have to do what? You're going to have to ask them how they are doing. And when you ask that question, it's the same thing every time. My husband is a loser, my boss is a pain, my wife is lazy, these people have done X, Y, Z to me and I'm mad, the IRS is out to get me, the cashier at McDonald's should be fired because they got my order wrong, I have only one pair of shoes, the doctor says I may have some unusual form of internal fungus and blah, 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 blah. Now when that picture is in, of that person is in your mind, we probably all met that person. I think there's a sense of that that is taking place here, that when Jesus asked this question, do you want to get well, to me it appears to be that, that what the response that is given here is is simply this man's pat, woe is me, I'm the victim speech. But just let me say it a little differently here. Sir, do you want to get well? Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and, and while I'm going, another steps before me. And I'm sure he's probably saying that with his hand out. Now, anyone ever been to another country, maybe a third world country? And people who are sick, who are lame, or who are uh, cripples and that kind of stuff, they have a tendency to know how to work the system, don't they? We don't see it too much here. They come on their wheelchairs, they come crawling up to cars as they come to certain places they stop, and they know what they're doing. Now, there may be something very, very similar that's going on with this person. That might be a shock to you. 
You may have been reading this passage and say, oh, this is great, this person is healed and all this kind of stuff. I think, I think there's something going on here based on some of the responses that this person gives. But Jesus says to this man, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, I want you to turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 6 through 8. And I want you to compare this story that we're studying with what takes place in Acts chapter 3 and verses 6 through 8. Here we have Peter. And Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Very similar, right? And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and what? Mm -hmm. You go back to John chapter 5, there's some walking, there's no leaping, and there certainly isn't any praising God. Now, I don't want to argue out of omission necessarily. I do think that, that what we do have in this story, that the, the, the bits and pieces that were given about this man, do not give evidence to the fact this man is praising God about the healing that he experienced. There is a different kind of response going on in these two different accounts. In fact, if you look at the text, there certainly is a command by Jesus to get up, take up your, your bed, and to walk. The next thing, though, we find is that the man's healed. There's no statement about, well, he was obedient and he did what Jesus said. Although that would be true also of Acts chapter 3, so I don't want to, you know, overstate the case. But the rest of the text just, just indicates maybe that the man was healed, but is far from exhibiting any kind of genuine appreciation or praise for what's going on. Look, at, look if you would, please, at verse 21. Sorry. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 1. This is the verse that, that comes to my mind here when I'm thinking about this. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21 talks about God having declared himself and shows himself to be who he is. And verse 21 of, of chapter 1 of Romans says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they were futile in their thinking. There's a lot that God does for people that they do not acknowledge, they do not thank him for, and they do not praise him for. So there's two very, very important principles um, I want us to think about here. Um, first principle is this. Healing isn't always the result of faith. I want you to think through this. The health, wealth, and prosperity crowd within Christian culture, broad Christian umbrella, has done a great disservice to the true church by associating degrees of faith and emphasis in faith as being necessary for healing. If someone has ever said to you when you're praying for healing, you just didn't have enough faith, shame on them, because that is not what Scripture teaches. But sad reality is many people think about healing in those terms. Now, let me qualify some things here. Does God want us to pray? Yes. Does he even want us to pray that we will be healed? 
Yes. Does he want us to exercise faith? Yes. All those things are true. But the ultimate reason why anyone is healed is because of the sovereign purposes of God. Not how much faith I have, not how long I prayed or how hard I prayed. Now, friends, we have to understand that. Because if we equate, you know, success in prayer based on how much or how much faith, we can, we can place ourselves in a very, very difficult place spiritually and theologically. And people will be very, very discouraged. In fact, they'll have a totally wrong view of their relationship with God. The sad reality is there's a lot within Christian culture that believes that and says that. When believers experience healing, what do they do? They give God glory. When unbelievers experience healing, what do they do? They may be amazed. They may say, what a great doctor I have, and what great medicine he gave me, and wow, you know, how did this happen? I can't explain it. Or they might say, well, there was some kind of a spiritual thing going on, but they may not glorify God. But there is healing that takes place. And it might be somewhat normative to us, but healing does take place, even among unbelievers who are not praying for healing. Here's the second thing. Healing doesn't always equal forgiveness. This is really important. One of the things that we have a tendency to do, and maybe I'm speaking for myself, but you think about this, is as we're reading you know, these passages in the Gospels, we, we typically see, we often see Jesus going into a village, going to a place, and we see him healing and casting out demons, and there's just kind of a, a good result, and the people are just happy, and they're, they're glad that he's there, and all that kind of stuff, right? But there's a good resolve to the story. It's hard for us to read a story where the resolve isn't good, because we usually like to have our stories wind up with good things. And oftentimes, we we fall short by thinking that when someone is healed, that also means that they are forgiven. And there are passages, there are stories where Jesus heals, and ultimately he, in that healing, because he saw that person's faith, forgives. Remember the one that was, was lowered down through the, the roof by, by his four friends? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Boom, he's healed. And, you know, the religious leaders are right. How in the world can you say that? Well, Jesus could look into the heart of that person. He knew what was going on there. But not every time Jesus heals is it necessarily equivalent to forgiveness. Not every time Jesus casts out a demon is it necessarily equal to forgiveness. These are all ways that Jesus is declaring who he is. Okay? Another example is the, the, the encounter that Jesus had with the, was it the ten lepers. He heals all ten, but only one comes back and is thankful. And why did he heal the other ones? To bring glory to himself. And see, there are things here that we struggle with. But I need to ask you and myself the same question. Do you want to get well? Let me speak to you. If you are someone who is not following Christ, you're, you're, you're here, but you haven't yet embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to think through this with me. Um, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He died so that you could get well. And you hear about the gospel, 
you've heard us preach it, you've heard us talk about it. Matt gave a little testimony here as he was given announcements about just how awesome the gospel is and how much, how much it's been an encouragement to him. But do you see the emptiness of your condition? Do you see that you're like this man at this pool chasing after superstitions, man-made solutions that are empty, that are void of any solution? That is your condition unless you're seeing Jesus Christ as the one true Lord and Savior. If you're a believer, do you want to get well? Do you truly want to see the condition of your heart? Yes, you're born again. Yes, God has given you a new heart. Yes, you have brought into your new life with Christ. As soon as you prayed the prayer of faith, you still brought into your new life all these habits of sin and thinking and ways that, that just distorted that. Do you honestly want God to reveal what is truly there in your heart, even as a child of God? Or is it just, I, I want my ticket to heaven, I'm satisfied with that. Do you want to get well? Do you want to grow? Do you want to see those areas in your heart, maybe areas of anger or bitterness or idolatry or conflict or anxiety, these are all areas that God speaks into so that his children can grow and become more like him. Now, Jesus challenges the superstition of the day with a clear demonstration of his power with the healing of this paralytic, but in doing so, he also challenges the religious elite, and that's what takes us now into this next little section. Jesus breaks, it shouldn't be an tradition, it should be a tradition, as we continue then in the story, <clears throat> John draws our attention to some specific fact. Notice what he says as we continue on. Now the day was the Sabbath. That's there for a reason. <clears throat> He's uh, giving us this kind of flashing sign saying there's something important going on here. So he, he tells us that, that this is the Sabbath and what took place here with this healing took place on the Sabbath. Jesus is knowingly healing this man on the Sabbath, and that would have rippling effects. So how do the religious elite respond? Verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, it was the Sabbath. No one's denying the fact that it was the Sabbath. Jesus isn't trying to undermine the Sabbath necessarily, but the Jewish religious elite had added rules to God's standards and regulations that are recorded in the Old Testament. They added rules with good intentions. Let me just kind of explain, you know, what's going on here. So the, the, what's the command in one of the Ten Commands relating to the Sabbath? Someone tell me. Say what? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All right, so if we want to do that, we want to actually give some guidelines as to how we can do that and what we think that looks like. So you establish certain guidelines that, we're, all right, you know what, we're, we're not going to work. Um, we're going we're gonna to limit our activity. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna, and you can put all these different kind of parameters around there. And they may be helpful guides. They may be good resources to make sure that in your mind you're thinking about what you're doing so that you can remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The problem is that oftentimes those guidelines then become rules and regulations that are on the same level as the initial purpose. You see, and then what happened, these kind of built and built and built. And ultimately, there were 
39 classes of work established that were to be avoided on the Sabbath. And one of those was carrying something. I won't get into all the details of what that is, but this man carrying his mat violated the Sabbath regulations. Didn't violate God's standards, okay? Don't equate their saying, you know, you're violating the Sabbath as, as if that was God's standards. These are their standards, the religious institution's standards, okay? So, um, and, and the reality is, guys, um, much of society views Christianity in that kind of way, doesn't it? Society views Christianity as if it's a, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. You've got to keep these rules, you've got to keep these rules. And the church ultimately is what? The church ultimately is the enforcer, especially the leaders in the church are the police running around making sure you do this and you don't do that and you don't do that. That's, that's often how culture views the church. And sad to say, it's not too uncommon to find that out there with things that are under the umbrella, not the true church, but under the umbrella of what, of what seems to be, in their minds, the church. But that is not God's way. That is not what he desires for us. In fact, um, that kind of view completely distorts God's desires and what he expects from his children. He does ex expect us to please him, to glorify him, and to live our lives in such a way that demonstrates that we are his children. But he is a gracious God. He knows that we are going to sin, and he forgives, he helps, he counsels, he guides, and ultimately he does all that for our good and for his glory. Now turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. You know, we, we often go to this passage for, you know, for training, for teaching kids, and just think about how we're going to grow. But it's important to, for us to understand that this is also speaking to this big picture of what God is calling us to do. All Scripture is, God, is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for, for training in righteousness, that the man of God, or you could say that the child of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. God wants you and me to be complete. He wants us to be equipped. And part of the reason we're taking the word of God in, part of the reason that, that he gives us guidance, that he gives us counsel, that he warns us, that he protects us, is because he wants us to be complete. He wants us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is in, is in the process of taking his church and, and, and purifying it to present the church to the Father. This is all part of the package that's going on here, okay? So back into our passage then. The man responds, verse 11. The man responds, but he answers them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So the, these religious leaders, the Jews here, are questioning this, this man who just got healed, and he says to them, the man who healed me, the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. He's the one that told me to, to carry this mat. They asked him, who is this man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? And I just, I just want you to notice what's going on here. Here's a guy who had been at the pool probably for quite a while. You wonder whether or not the religious leadership even noticed that he was there. He may have been a regular. He may have been known. We're not told. The text doesn't tell us. But there's some conclusions that we can make. He probably was well-known, and you wonder, why did Jesus choose him out of the others? Maybe it's because his condition had been so long. We don't know exactly, 
But did you catch here that the paralytic was, uh, that was healed says, the man who healed me. The Jews say, the man who said, take up your bed and walk. In other words, they're not even acknowledging that there was a healing. They don't even want to recognize the supernatural power that was demonstrated on this man's life. All they're concerned about is what? You're carrying a mat. <laughs> now, guys, there, the, there's the, you know, the ultimate picture of legalism gone wrong. Kind of, that's like oxymoron, right? Legalism gone wrong. I mean, it's just, this is, this is where things go. And when we are so consumed with standards and rules and regulations, we don't see the important things. We just see the violations. We don't see the reality of what's going on and the beauty of what's going on here. Verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. So there's a wonderful picture here of God's grace. We kind of touched on it a little bit. The picture is here of this pool of, you know, just crowded with the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. But it is only to one man that Jesus extends his grace of healing. Why this man? Why not the other guy sitting across the pool, you know, whose, whose leg was twisted? Why not him? What, what made this man so special? Now, and we start asking that question, and we start wandering off into it's not fair territory, right? And that's what happens oftentimes when we think about the fact that God is sovereign and that he has come and sought you out as opposed to your neighbor, as opposed to that, that co-worker who has a really bad mouth, as opposed to that other person you know who's just kind of you know, living off in the world. Why has he chosen you? Why did he pursue you? What makes you any better than anyone else? And the answer is what? Nothing. Except for God in his wisdom has chosen to do so. And that's why we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch was, uh, Like Me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He didn't see first and then choose God and then say, oh, how amazing grace is. He was blind, and God came down, and I'm taking you. Can't explain why God does that, but he does. And if you've experienced God's grace in your life, salvific grace, that you are now one of his children, I can't explain the whys. You certainly didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. But the reality is he has. And the fact that he has means that we all gather together and we worship him because we know we don't deserve it because we're no better than anyone else. Now, verse 14, afterward, transition that's taking place here. The idea of this word afterwards means later sometime. It's not like immediately after that there was some time involved here. But then we find Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Why would he say that? It's kind of a strange thing, isn't it? Now, it's very, very likely, and I think this is where this is going, that his condition may have been the result of sin. But Jesus is driving at something far deeper, I think, than the physical realities. He's, he's driving at something that is a spiritual reality. I don't think this, this man who is healed was 
you know, walking and leaping and praising God. I don't think he's acknowledging you know, and attributing um, praise to God for his healing. I think he was healed, but he's going off on his merry way. And Jesus finds him and says, listen, you're well, but now what? Sin no more and have nothing. Uh, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. John MacArthur s- says it this way, although scripture is clear that illness is not always imme- the immediate result of personal sin, it also teaches that some sicknesses are directly related to deliberate disobedience. Now, John MacArthur is only saying what Scripture teaches. Um, that's, what, uh, that's ultimately what David says. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Um, the Apostle Paul, when instructing the Corinthian church about how they were practicing the Lord's table, says in verse 30 of chapter 11, that this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. He's talking about their sinful behavior and their sinful attitude. So there certainly is a connection many times between someone's sin and their condition. And, and it doesn't take long to look at certain lifestyle habits to say this condition is a result of this person's sin. But, oh, you know, be careful where you say that, right? But it's true. But it isn't always the, the result of sin. That's, that's the qualifier that we need to understand. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But what Jesus ultimately is driving at here, here's what he's saying. Look, I made you well physically. Now take this opportunity to learn from what I have done and stop your sinning or you will experience something worse, eternal judgment in hell. And the man's response is even more evidence, I believe, of his dullness as to who Jesus is and what he was doing and what he was saying. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. All right, so let me get this picture. Jesus comes and says, listen, now that you're well, don't go and sin anymore or something worse is going to happen to you. Okay, now I'm going to go tell on you. You know, it's just, don't you want to slap him? Just pretend in your heart. Verse uh, 15, the man went away, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So now we see the ultimate issue here at hand. This is what they're struggling with, that Jesus was doing some things on the Sabbath, that he was not, he was not willing to play their religious leadership reindeer reindeer games. He wasn't willing to go there. He wasn't willing to join in with with their facade. And when you when you demonstrate that you do not respect them, when you demonstrate that you are challenging them, they will turn on you and they will seek to snuff you out. And they're no longer intrigued with him in this chapter. Now they desire to persecute him because he is now the enemy of the state. He is now the object of their wrath simply because he healed a man on the Sabbath and he told him to carry his mat. So having challenged the superstition of man and the Sabbath requirements of the Jewish religious system, what we see next, although easily overlooked, is staggering. 
it is only John that tells us, his readers, what the Jews were thinking. The Jews aren't saying this to Jesus. This is what they're thinking. Look at verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus answers them. Now I want you to think through this. If they don't say anything, but Jesus answers them, what does that tell you about Jesus? His omniscience kicking in, right? He is all-knowing. He sees into man's hearts. We've already seen that in chapter 2 when all those people came and, and they were celebrating. Oh, isn't it great? He's done all these signs or whatever, but Jesus knew their hearts. And here, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. And before they even make any statement, he's answering them. That's the point of that word answer. He's confronting them with what he's saying here. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Here we have Jesus working his mission. He's working his mission. Now, on the surface, this statement um, really kind of gives us a limited understanding of what what it is that Jesus is saying. But let's just kind of think through this a little bit. Uh, Let's think about what the Jews were offended by. They were offended by his work that he was doing on the Sabbath, which would be healing. You with me there? It's the first thing. Secondly, they're offended that he would incite someone else to violate the Sabbath by carrying a mat. Right? That's hard for us to imagine. But that's what they're upset about. So Jesus answers their concerns by using a word that challenges them about what he's doing. And what is that word? Work. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now, the reason we need to step back and think through this is because the Jews ultimately at that point had wrestled in their idea of God and their understanding of what it means for God to rest on the Sabbath and for God then, based on that example, to, to command his people then to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, how is it that the God who is the creator can keep the Sabbath himself? Because if he were to keep the Sabbath himself, that would mean that he would not be working, he would not be sustaining the universe, he would not be interacting in people's lives, he would not be providing the help and listening to the prayers and and, and receiving the worship. He has to be working ultimately on the Sabbath, is the conclusion they came to. So the only person that is able to not keep the Sabbath righteously and justly is who? It's the Father. And so Jesus says, the Father has been working until now. Guess what? Now, I am working. (laughs) Now, how do they respond? Oh, good. We're glad that you said that. No, no. It's like, you know, the, 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 you can see the blood kind of rising up, right? Because what he ultimately is saying by that statement is this. What you attribute to the Father, you should attribute to me. The freedom you give the Father to do whatever he desires to do on the Sabbath, that would be in the category of work, you should attribute to me. And ultimately what he was saying is, I and the Father are 
equal. And that's what we find in verse 18. So the healing, the telling of this man is simply demonstrating the fact that he is equal with the Father and that he is working just like the Father is also working. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So here we have the, the, the transition from intrigue to persecution. Now they want to kill him, all in the space of one day. This didn't happen by coincidence. I think if you look at the events that took place on this day, Jesus went to Bethesda for the exact purpose of healing someone on the Sabbath so that the religious leadership would be offended that he was healing on the Sabbath so that he could stand before them and say, listen, the Father's been working till now, but now I'm working. He is introducing, he's revealing the fact that he is equal with God. Now, this isn't the first time that John has told us this. John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, to the Jews, that was blasphemy. That was an, an offense. That was being disrespectful to God. But that's who John is presenting here, that Jesus is equal to God. In fact, if you go to John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus is speaking, and he says to them again, the religious leadership, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And you study that expression. He's saying, just like God is I am, the Father is I am, I am, I am. And then you go to John chapter 10 and verse 30 and 30 through 33. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Just once again saying, Let me, which, of the, which of the things I've done that is attributed to God the Father are you going to stone me for? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. That's John's whole argument here, that Jesus is God in the flesh. He is man, and he is now demonstrating with all the titles in chapter 1, you remember that, with the signs that took place in chapter 2 and chapter, uh, chapter 3, the discourse there, and ultimately now in chapter 5, we're going to find out more and more through the discourse that Jesus is saying to them, I and the Father are one. We're equal. Look at the end of John chapter 5 and verse 30, 39 and 40. This is at the end of the discourse, the end of the discussion that he's going to give. But notice what he says. Again, to these same people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Right, I mean, here's, here again, here's the theme. Evidence, belief, resulting in life. You don't believe the right facts, you don't follow the right evidence, you're not going to have life. That, 
verse hangs over the events of this chapter. This man who is healed, refusing to come to Jesus. These religious Jews deceived into thinking that they are pursuing life. The one, however, who claims to be equal with God came to his own, and his own people, what? Did not receive him. Now, one of the sad things about this message is we're stopping right in the middle of this, this thing because Jesus next jumps right into this discourse, and it's just like, psh, psh, these guys. I mean, it's just absolutely powerful, and that's why I'm saying this is a great passage for you and I to study for a number of reasons. Are there religions out there that believe that Jesus is not God? Absolutely. Is it important that we understand that Jesus is God? Yes. Can we articulate that? Can we show from Scripture that that is true? Do you know where to go to and how to argue that to be true? Well, here's a great passage we can turn to because Jesus himself claims that he is in so many different ways. Here's some concluding thoughts as we bring this together. Number one, <laughs> yun. I know what happened. It didn't, it didn't save when I did it. All right. So that, that was my concluding thought. Yun. And go with that, if you would, please. Just go with that. That would be great. Now, here's number one, all right? Don't be surprised that people accept good from God but still reject him. Don't be surprised that people accept, or I should say, receive or accept good from God, but still they reject him. We're supposed to get rain this week, right? Hopefully. Your neighbors will get rain. I don't think God just kind of says, I'm going to rain on all the believers' homes. It's going to rain on everyone. People, people are benefited with so many things. They're benef benefited with, with doctors who are skillful. They, most people have money coming in. You know, there's all sorts of things, ways in which the blessing of God is being poured out on people who are undeserving, and yet people still reject him. Don't be surprised. Be careful that's not you. Secondly, don't be surprised that man-made religion squeezes out Christ, that would be the Christ of the Bible, and replaces him with good works. Don't be surprised that the religions that are out there will say, well, yeah, you know, we, yeah, we, we recognize that Jesus was a good prophet. That he, was a, he was a good teacher. But, but how you make progress in this world is, and they can fill in the gap with whatever it is, it's not the gospel. And so they squeeze out Christ by making him something else, by denying the fact that he is God, by maybe just saying he was a good man, he was a good prophet, he was a good teacher, but he's not God. That's often what happens, and it, sadly it happens even under the umbrella of what is called Christianity out there. And the last thing here is this. Don't be surprised at the ultimate hatred toward Christ and his followers because he confronts their superstitions, their sacred cows, and their systems of belief. I'll say that again. Don't be surprised at the ultimate hatred toward Christ and his followers because he confronts their superstitions their sacred cows, and their systems of belief. People, people don't like to be unsettled that way. And yet, when the gospel comes, it affects everything, and it's radical, and it penetrates. And so many people will bristle 
against that. Lord, help us today just to contemplate. Lord, even as just kind of a, a beginning place, the fact that you're equal with the Father. And although we, we would affirm that truth, I think all of us in here today, if we had a checklist of things that we would say, this is true, this is true, Lord, we would affirm that you are equal with God, but Lord, can we articulate it? Do we understand what that looks like? Do we, do we have a way that we can argue that from your word? Lord, why is that important? All of these are great questions, Lord, that we need to be considering right now, that, that, that Jesus, by virtue of his teaching, is confronting of these, these men, Lord, is going to reveal for us, and John has recorded it for us so that we can see the evidence that will lead us to belief and ultimately life. And Lord, I ask that you would help us, um, Lord, to take this theological um, point, Lord, that is so important and, and ponder it and meditate on it and to dig so that we can be clear about this, Lord, not just to assume it's true, but to know that it's true, and Lord, to have that as a, a sure foundation in our lives. And Lord, I, I also ask that you would give us uh, kind of a fresh understanding, Lord, as to the, the nature of superstition that is so prevalent in our culture, in particular, this, this whole arena of healing and Lord, how we are to pray for it and how we are to, to kind of adjust to, Lord, what your purposes are, Lord. There's so much that is said in the name of Christianity, Lord, that is damaging, that is not true. And, Lord, maybe we are the recipients of that. Maybe we have given that. Lord, would you give us clarity so that we can truly help one another in a way that would, that would bring the gospel to bear, that would see you as high and lifted up and completely in control and, and loving your children and desiring your best interest in them, Lord. And sometimes that isn't um, resolving whatever it is that we're going through. Sometimes that is just giving us grace to endure those times. Lord, help us to, to humble ourselves before that. And then, Lord, also help us just to be careful that we are not slipping away um, in our Christian habits toward, um, Lord, a legalism that, would, that may have good intentions, but, Lord, may undermine the reality of having a heart-to-heart -heart relationship with you. And, uh, Lord, may, may those thoughts and those challenges be things that your Holy Spirit is working on us this week, Lord, that we would, we would be able to be fed and strengthened, Lord, by you as we open up your word, as we study more, as we dig together. And, uh, Lord, just strengthen us and, and encourage us now, uh, we ask in your precious name. Amen.